Welcome to Dermatologically Tested, the podcast of the British Association of Dermatologists, aka the BAD. On this podcast, we'll be exploring the world of our skin with a range of dermatological experts, tackling topics from the clinical to the cosmetic. I'm Matt Gass, and with me is Nina Goad, Head of Communications at the BAD. Today, we'll be talking about the COVID-19 pandemic from the perspective of dermatologists and dermatology researchers, featuring interviews with Professor Nick Lavelle, past president of the BAD, and Dr. John Ingram, editor of the BJD. Hi, Nina. How are things your end? Yeah, not too bad, Matt. Thank you for asking. I don't really have a whole lot to complain about at the moment. Um, definitely keeping busy with work. I think that can be a bit of a mixed blessing, as people will no doubt know when you've got children to think about as well. But yeah, I've not got a whole lot to whinge about at the moment. Great. That's good to hear. Well, amongst other things today, we'll be discussing tips on looking after your skin through all this hand washing, the guidance that's been issued to dermatology patients, and the impact that the pandemic has had on dermatology research. Our first guest is Professor Nick Lavelle. Nick is a consultant dermatologist based in Norwich and is a past president of the BAD. He currently leads the BAD's Therapy and Guidelines Committee and has played a very important role in the response to the pandemic by British dermatologists. Nick, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, good to be here, Matt. So, Nick, uh, one of the first things I wanted to talk to you about was um, one of the key recommendations uh, that's come out during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, that's the the hand washing. I think a lot of people, uh, myself included, have have struggled with the damage that it does to your hands, um, persistently washing your hands throughout the day. Uh, but obviously, it's really important to to help managing. Uh, and reducing the risk of uh, getting coronavirus. Um, what would your recommendations be to, to help manage your skin and, and reduce the damage it does to your hands? Yeah, it's one of the things which I've really noticed when I've been working in the hospital matters, um, how many of the members of staff actually have been coming up to see us with problems with um, dry hands. Um, and of course, all the population has been told to wash their hands um, and as I hope everybody realises, doctors in particular wash their hands a lot between, between patients. Um, the normal advice we give to people who are washing their hands a lot is to wash their hands with a cream instead of soap. But unfortunately, with coronavirus, that doesn't work because the coronavirus isn't properly washed off when you wash your hands with cream. So because of that, we're having to tell people to wash their hands with detergents or with alcohol solutions. That then dries the skin out a lot and gives people real problems. So presumably, if we're all having to wash our hands quite so often as we are at the moment, and we can't use a cream to, to ease that process, is it a case of aftercare and, and, and doing what we can to minimise the damage through using other creams and so on after we wash? I mean, there's two situations. One is people who've got not previously had eczema before, and there's people who have had hand eczema or, or other skin problems in their hands before. Um, if you haven't had eczema before, then um, washing your hands frequently will gradually dry your skin out. Uh, but if you can compensate for that by using a moisturiser regularly after you wash your hands, and in particular, I advise people to put a really loads of moisturiser on their hands at night before they go to bed. It will help to keep the amount of uh, oil in the skin in balance. So for, that's good for people who are who don't have skin problems. If you already have eczema on your hands, then you're in a really tricky position because if you wash with your normal cream, for which is what we normally tell people to do with hand eczema, 
then we know that isn't as effective at removing the coronavirus. On the other hand, if you wash with soap, that will make your eczema much worse uh, in, in a lot of people have had eczema. Sorry, you mentioned that it's best for people not to be washing their hands with an emollient or a cream um, if they have very dry skin, which might be what we normally would recommend to people um, because it perhaps doesn't get rid of the coronavirus if they have it on their hands. Is it safe, though, for them to just apply an emollient after hand washing? So that's not a problem. It's just the actual washing with the cream that's the problem. Yes, I think I think that's what we advise people to do is to wash their hands with a usually an alcohol product is usually less uh, less bad for, for if you've got eczema from washing with soap, but washing with some sort of detergent pro- product and then putting some moisturiser on afterwards. I mean, the other things which can be helpful is wearing gloves, and of course, if you're wearing wearing gloves, then you can you can pop a pair of gloves on um, and then wash the gloves um, without actually washing your hands underneath. And, and that's something which a lot of people, I think, do. We've got hand eczema. Is just pop on a pair of uh, nitrile gloves, which are the gloves doctors often wear in the hospital. And if you do that, then you can sort of wash the gloves instead of washing washing your hands. That 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 can that that can be helpful. Um, that sounds quite useful. Um, one tip that someone gave me, and this has really worked for my daughter who has hand eczema anyway, even before coronavirus kicked in which is I bought a pair of just plain cotton gloves, quite tight fitting, and I put on a thick emollient onto her hands before bedtime and then she wears the gloves. And that has made a huge difference, actually, because I guess the emollient's then not rubbing off overnight on her bed sheets and things like that. Yeah, it's a great idea, Nina. And so I think putting some gloves on over the top, if you if you find you can sleep with gloves on, not everybody finds they can sleep with gloves on, but if you can sleep with gloves on, then that's a great idea. I have a cotton gloves or some people even put the set of nitrile gloves on as well. So presumably these these are just plain cotton gloves that you can buy online, or do you need to go to a pharmacy for them? I know that you can get hold of plain cotton gloves really easily online. They're fairly inexpensive, just from online retailers. Um, yeah, and they're easy to come by and not too expensive, and they really do work because, you know, they're keeping the emollient on your hands overnight so yeah i definitely recommend them i think they could also be washed can't they nina and then reused as well so if you, you don't need that many pairs of cotton gloves you get a few pairs of cotton gloves and then just then circulate them around washing them in washing them um regularly yeah and you can hot wash them as well because they're made of cotton i just put them on a really hot wash um every couple of days and it's absolutely fine another thing about gloves another tip that someone's given me is when I've had hand eczema um, just things like you sometimes don't realize how often you're coming into contact with detergents I think you know that washing your hands with soap is going to cause a problem but I think sometimes you just you don't realize things like washing your child's hair in the bath is you know that's still contact with a detergent so having like latex gloves if, gloves if you don't have a latex allergy or some sort of gloves available to just quickly pop on when you're doing those sorts of jobs can help as well. One, one part of my job, Nina, is to is I, I, I do an allergy testing clinic, so I see a lot of patients with hand eczema. And what, what I tell all of them to do is to buy two boxes of nitrile gloves, which again could be bought on the internet. That's nitrile's N-I-T-R-I-L-E, nitrile gloves. Um, and keep one box in the kitchen and one box in the bathroom 
and use them in exactly the way you've, you've, you've advised when you're preparing food, just pop a pair of nitrile gloves on. When you're in the bathroom, washing your own hair, washing your children's hair, doing a bit of cleaning around the shower or anywhere, just pop, pop a pair of nitrile gloves on. That's a great tip. I'll try that one. Nick, perhaps one thing that would be very helpful is, as a past president of the BAD, you could perhaps give a little bit of background of what the role is of a specialist society, uh, particularly as we sort of explore a little bit more about the response to coronavirus and uh, the role of the BAD within British dermatology, uh, just so people sort of understand where we're coming from. Yeah, of course, Matt. I mean, the BAD is a charity, first of all, and it's a, and it's a charity for the benefit of patients, um, improving clinical services, improving education, improving research. Um, and it's also a membership organisation. So most of the um, 800 or so consultant dermatologists in the UK are members of the BAD, British Association of Dermatologists. But the important thing is that we're a charity. We're not a government organisation and we're not part of the NHS. So we don't have any official role. But what we do have is that we're recognised by the government as being a group, the group of specialists in the UK. So in fact, what happens is the government often comes to us and asks us for advice and asks us to help them formulate plans. However, we we don't we can't make the rules. We can give advice to the government, who can then decide whether or not to take that advice. Um, but what we also do is we we have um, inf- we produce information for patients, and that's on the BAD website www.bad.org.uk. Um, and if people who have skin diseases or have problems with their skin go onto the website, they'll find there's lots of resources there which can be helpful to them. I know Nina, you also have a lot to do with this with with information on the website for health patients don't you yeah we've got a ton of information about different skin diseases which is great and at the moment i think it's just been so valuable having our website and social media as a portal to get information out to people about covid19 about coronavirus and the skin um because i think people as we've talked about have really suffered with dry skin and hand washing and questions about which I know we're going to come on to but questions about how their skin disease impacts their chances of um, getting the virus and things like that so yeah it's been invaluable at the moment. Nick perhaps you could expand a little bit on the process of developing this information. One of the real challenges during the Covid epidemic has been that we normally base our advice on evidence um, and if we haven't got evidence, we're based on expert opinion. But because COVID's a new disease, we don't have the evidence in terms of research. And normally an expert is somebody who's had a lot of experience of something. So almost by definition, we're not experts on COVID as well. So what we're having to do is we're having to look at our experience in other skin diseases and in other infections, and then try and use common sense to apply that to, to COVID. But because of this, it's so new, we, we are being very humble in what we're saying and recognising that a lot of what we're saying may turn out not to be correct in the future. Right from the beginning of the coronavirus um, pandemic, we've had groups which have gathered together to try and produce advice in different areas. And the first bit of advice we produced was we were very concerned when the coronavirus pandemic started as to who should be shielded. And the the government came to us and said to us, could we give them advice on this? Um, and um, what happened was, is we've then formed a group with 
some other specialists from different uh, specialist societies, with so a gastroenterologist, the rheumatologist, the chest physicians, and we formed a group together to try and produce guidance for people with skin diseases, as advise them who should be shielded, who should stay at home. So this this worked well. We formed we formed some guidance. We tried to make the guidance consistent between different specialties, and we then. Um, released this advice and we put it all on our website. Unfortunately, there was some confusion after that because after we'd issued our official advice, then other groups then started to issue advice as well. So a lot of people, a lot of patients will have been quite confused because they may have had advice from us saying, you do need to be shielded or don't need to be shielded. Then they may have had, unfortunately, conflicting advice coming through. But from our point of view, and as we understand it, the government's point of view, the advice on the BAD website is the official advice on whether or not you should be shielded for people with, with skin conditions. And so when you say shielded, they're the people who have been advised to, you know, this is beyond just general lockdown rules. This is, you should be staying at home entirely. Yeah, that's right. These, these are the people who are, are the very highest risk people. Uh, as we know from, um, listening to the news that there are many factors which increase your risk of coronavirus if you um, come from a, um, a BAME uh, origin then you may be higher risk a black ethnic minority origin if you are male if you're older if you're overweight but also many different diseases as well can increase your risk so not everybody can be shielded not everybody can be advised to stay at home or else we wouldn't have the resources in society to be able to look after everybody. If, if half the population stayed at home, uh, the other people, there wouldn't be enough people around to look after them. So the, so we had to try and give advice to protect the most vulnerable 2 million people in society. We picked out the groups of people who felt were really the very most vulnerable people and 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 gave them this advice to, to, to stay at home. Letters were then sent out. We coordinated sending out letters from the dermatology departments to people, and this was coordinated with the Department of Health in an advisory in a voluntary capacity to help the Department of Health in this. That's actually a huge piece of work, isn't it? Because it's not just about people's inherent risk, which I think people are probably quite aware of, things like whether you're older or overweight, but also a stratification according to drugs they might be taking that might be um, compromising their immune system and I'm guessing some of these drugs might be used across different specialties so not just within dermatology for skin patients but you know also used in other specialties so that's a huge amount of cross-referencing that has to go into a document like that and it also has to be a fluid document as new evidence emerges so yeah I'm assuming that's actually quite a piece of work yeah. So, for example, somebody with psoriasis who also has arthritis, what we didn't want them to do is to get advice from a dermatologist saying they did need shielding and advice from their rheumatologist saying they didn't need shielding if they're on the same drug for two different conditions. So there's a lot of coordination needed there. But also we've had to be we've had to look at new evidence as it's come out over the last two months to change that advice um, and to update it as, as new evidence has arrived. So the, the document has changed on our website as time goes on and will continue to change as new evidence appears. So briefly, as you, you touched on immunosuppressive drugs, is the advice broadly that people should be staying on their, on the medication um, if it's an immunosuppressive? 
I know a lot of people had questions over whether or not it would increase their chance of getting COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, this is what one of the big unknown areas. We don't know whether being on immunosuppressive drugs increases your risk or decreases your risk. Some people have been looking into the possibility that some of the problems caused by COVID-19 are actually due to the body's immune system reacting against the virus. And so some of the drugs which have been looked at to help people with COVID-19 in research studies are actually some of the same drugs which we give to people to treat skin diseases. And so because of that, we're very cautious about stopping drugs. What we're really worried about, if you stop somebody's drug, and it subsequently turns out to be a drug which is actually helpful. So not only has the patient stopped their drug and probably had a big flare-up of their skin disease, but we also may have taken away a drug which might be helpful to them in the future. We just don't know. So that's why we've not advised stopping drugs um, in most circumstances. Um, the other aspect of stopping your drugs is, of course, that if your skin disease does flare up, then you may then have to come into hospital because you've got a skin, a severe skin disease, and that may then expose you to COVID-19 in hospital. Presumably, people on immunosuppressive drugs are usually the more severe spectrum of skin disease. They are, yes. So if you stop, stop the drugs, it's pretty likely the skin disease is going to flare up and the person's going to need advice. And, so that's, and that advice might involve coming up to hospital when they will be exposed potentially to people with COVID-19 to catch it, you see. So then not only would they have a big flare-up of their skin disease, but they then might also then catch the virus. Of course, if you get COVID-19 and get it very severely and you become unwell, then the doctors in the hospital will may then take the decision to stop the drug temporarily and give you other treatment. But in general, people who are at home taking the drugs, we're not suggesting stopping them. Um, and We've had these conversations with a lot of patients and weighed up the pros and cons because it has to be an individual decision. Yep. And the other aspect of that is that we want people to be aware that they may still get skin problems which can be which should be treated. So the particular area we're worried about is people who get signs of skin cancer and perhaps because they're worried about coming up to hospital or going to their doctors, they don't seek help. So one of the really strong messages we'd like to, I'd like to give out is to say to people that if, if they've got a, something on their skin which looks different, which is growing over a period of weeks or months and changing colour or changing shape, then do speak to your doctor about it. Um, it's very easy to, for your doctor to assess this. You could take a photograph and send it to your doctor if necessary, the doctors can send that up to a hospital to be looked at. And then if we're worried at all, we can arrange for you to be seen. So we're still carrying on a service, seeing patients with possible skin cancer to make sure that we don't miss these. What we don't want to see is a lot of people presenting late with skin cancer and not being treated properly and coming to harm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really important message, actually. Nick, just one more question. What do you feel the impact of COVID-19 will be on how dermatology departments run and, and how you as healthcare professionals work on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you think there's any, any positive changes um, and innovations that will come about due to this crisis? Yeah, I think, I think it's really interesting there, Matt, because I think we, are, we have seen some real changes. 
Uh, one of the jobs I was doing before was to go around the country looking at innovation in technology. And we've really seen this take off over the last couple of months because we've been forced to do it because people haven't been able to bring people up to hospital to see them. What, one of the big changes is using telephone consultations, which is very simple, just talking on the telephone rather than seeing people to face to face. And I think we've all been amazed by how much you can achieve with telephone conversations. Um, it won't work for more than maybe 5 or 10% consultations, but even so, that's an awful lot of people who maybe can just have a quick phone call rather than coming up to hospital, which will save them a lot of save them time leaving work, save a lot of traffic on our roads and save a lot of, lot of space in hospital car parks. So telephone consultations are important. We've also been using a lot of um, photographs. Um, people taking photographs of their rashes and the GP sending up a photograph to us and asking for advice. And the, the term we use for that is advice and guidance. Um, and this advice and guidance has really taken off in our hospital. We've been getting maybe four or five requests a day for advice and guidance, where previously we were getting that number in a week. And, that, and again, that can be much more convenient for people if their GP can take a photograph, send it up to the hospital, get a reply back in 48 hours and give them advice straight away. That's far better than waiting weeks for a hospital appointment. Um, and we're, we're really optimistic that advice and guidance will make a big difference to uh, treatment going forward. There still will be a definite need for face-to-face -face consultations. Some people, patients want this. And to be honest, a lot of doctors do that. You don't become a doctor because you want to sit there talking to a computer or a telephone all day long. You can become a doctor because you enjoy meeting people and talking to people. Um, and so I think there will always be a, a role for face-to-face -face consultations. But we do need to look at where telephone consultations or advice and guidance it can be a more effective way of managing a situation for a patient in particular to avoid taking them time off work. Thanks, Nick, so much for coming on and um, answering our questions. I think for a lot of people, having this kind of information is really reassuring. OK, thanks very, mu very much for having me here. Thanks so much, Nick. This has been really informative. Thank you. So next up, we're lucky enough to have Dr John Ingram, consultant dermatologist and editor of the BJD, the British Journal of Dermatology. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us. Matt, thanks for having me. It's, uh, yeah, it's good to uh, be able to talk in these uh, tricky times. Perfect. Well, I hope you don't mind if I just jump straight in. So I, I think one of the, the big questions when it comes to, to research and dermatology research that people will have during the COVID-19 pandemic is presumably this is having an impact on people's ability to conduct research. What do you anticipate the long-term impact to be? Well, I think there are probably three main impacts on dermatology research right now. Um, we've had to pause clinical trials um, into non-COVID studies and prioritise COVID ones. Um, so I think that will have a knock-on effect down the line in terms of uh, manuscripts reaching us at BJD. Um, studies are being encouraged to perform remote follow-up. So that's still going on often, but just um, not face-to-face, -face, which may have some impact on on the, the trial uh, follow-up data. But on the, on the flip side, uh, we noticed that some academics, perhaps because they have more time at the moment to write up research, are providing more manuscripts. And in fact, submissions to BJD are up by more than one third compared to this time last year. Uh, and of course, there is a surge of research um, coming through on COVID-19. So it's really led to a, 
intensification of, of medical research to some extent. So I suppose that's, that's slightly counter to, to what a lot of people would have instinctively thought. With the BJD specifically, um, do you feel that you've had to adapt quite a lot yourselves in how you work, or is it largely business as normal? So, I mean, most journals, and, and uh, including us, uh, we run through web-based platforms and uh, we don't uh, need uh, face-to-face meetings to keep the work going. Um, and so it hasn't had a direct impact on, on the publication process uh, for us. Our printers are also um, still able to operate using uh, physical distancing. Uh, and so the journal is being printed and distribution is uh, varies from country to country, but it, it is still going on in, in most places. The, uh, one of the issues we have is that our reviewers are often uh, clinicians, and so they have had a change in their working practices. And we're very fortunate to have some really committed reviewers who are continuing to provide a brilliant service. But um, you know, I'm very conscious that we need to protect their time. And so uh, you know, we're, we're really doing a bit more front-end triage and uh, ensuring that only papers that... Um, you know, we think have got a good chance of making it to publication and being sent out to, to our reviewers so we can keep our review times uh, still very swift. So, John, I understand that a lot of the papers that you're accepting in the journals at the moment relate to COVID-19. Can you explain how this publication process works? Because I understand they are being fast-tracked. So how does this impact on the turnaround time and how does that compare to how you would normally publish things in the journal? Are there also any risks that you have to manage when you fast track papers? Yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, it's important that, uh, that relevant dermatology uh, research is, is reaching the public domain swiftly because this is such a, you know, a, a rapidly changing um, sort of global scenario. Um, and I think dermatology has some important areas to, to offer in terms of, of the medical research community. Um, I, you know, I think we've been contributing to diagnostic elements, the, the sort of COVID toes that, that we'll discuss maybe in a bit, um, and other uh, skin rash um, patterns that are, dermatologists are really well placed to, to uh, advise the medical community on. And there's the issue of, of um, the effects of personal protective equipment, the, the PPE on healthcare workers and, and other people wearing PPE, uh, things like irritant contact dermatitis that, that we need to be uh, highlighting. And then there's the uh, understanding how the immunomodulated drugs that, that we use in dermatology for inflammatory skin rashes, but other specialties use as well in their own chronic inflammatory diseases, uh, how are they affecting uh, the risks of, of uh, infection from COVID-19 and um, the, the chances of having severe disease? So, so there's quite a few important um, stories that we need to, um, to showcase at, at BJD. And that means that we do need to be thinking about fast-tracking papers. Uh, I should explain that we already had a fast-track process prior to COVID-19, and that was for papers such as large randomized controlled trials that uh, 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 there was a particular time pressure to to get those um, in the public domain. Uh, But we we never uh, compromise on quality. That's the uh, the bedrock of the journal, and our our brand is that we always have a high-quality peer review. And so, Usually, we would um, uh, basically have a front-end triage process, which uh, I look at it. All of the uh, three and a half thousand 
manuscript sent to the journal each year and provide a initial triage and uh, the strongest papers I send through to a section editor um, who has a look uh, and then uh, if they feel it's, that the paper has potential they send it on to an associate editor uh, and they then uh, begin the review process uh, where our reviewers are looking to add value to the paper to improve it where they can and so on. Um, and we would uh, have reviews from at least two external reviewers, usually three, uh, and often that would include a statistics uh, reviewer from one of our in-house statisticians to ensure that, uh, uh, that the numbers add up. Uh, and, um, and then the, the process works in reverse. It, it goes back up the editorial chain to me, and I make a final decision. Uh, and then we send back comments to the authors and ask for revisions where, um, where necessary. Um, Fast Track still follows the same basic process because that's how we ensure quality. Uh, the difference to make it uh, a bit quicker is that um, it's normally myself or another senior editor who personally supervises the review process. We still request two or three reviewers. Uh, we still may reject the paper if reviewers uh, highlight issues and it, certainly if there are any fatal methodological flaws. Um, and then we send back those comments to uh, the authors uh, and typically we'll ask them for changes um, you know, before uh, we can consider publishing a paper. And so we just do all this more rapidly. Our reviewers are aware that this is a high profile paper and they do their best to send comments back within uh, a matter of a couple of days. And, and uh, we are already quick for most, for our, uh, our standard review process. Our, our median time for all first decisions is one day because most are being rejected at front end triage. Uh, for those that go full, through to full review, our both our median and our mean time when we exclude those immediate decisions is 24 days. For fast track, for for example, uh, perhaps our highest profile uh, paper we'll come on to later, that um, we took through rigorous peer review and a round of revision, uh, and that um, went from submission to being um, in the public domain on PubMed uh, early view in 11 days. Just 11 days, really. Perhaps for people at home, you could highlight some of the papers that you find particularly important um, that have been fast-tracked relating to COVID-19. Sure, Matt. Well, one of the first papers we received through was from the head of Wuhan's dermatology department. And uh, he was commenting on the challenge of running a dermatology department in the face of COVID-19. And at that point, you know, we really, I think in... Uh, in, in Europe and elsewhere, we, we hadn't understood the, the, the real challenge of dermatology as a rapid throughput specialty, seeing lots of patients. So there's a whole series of steps that can be taken to, to minimize the risk of hospital-acquired infection from patients visiting the department. And of course, ways to mitigate for that in terms of um, in, you know, virtual consultations and so on. And that's been a theme of, of several of our papers to, to avoid face-to-face -face consults and, and risk of, of exposure of our patients. And then we began getting to receive papers from hotspots uh, elsewhere. We had a paper from Northern Italy about how biologic therapies that we use in chronic inflammatory skin diseases might affect COVID-19, uh, which showed that there was no increase in hospitalizations or fatalities in uh, psoriasis patients on biologic therapy. So, uh, early but important data. And the next step really is to have uh, registry data come through where we have a systematic uh, wide scale uh, reporting of uh, outcomes uh, in, in patients, for example, 
with psoriasis or uh, eczema who are having uh, biologic and other immunomodulator therapies to understand their outcomes. And we published uh, some correspondence on that already where our registries were uh, alerting colleagues that they're up and running uh, to ensure that clinicians can submit cases to those registries to contribute to data collection. And the results of the registry studies are really going to provide the definitive evidence about uh, what these biologic therapies and other immunomodulators may or may not be doing to, to COVID outcomes. We also um, have been able to uh, publish on uh, the skin reactions I mentioned previously due to PPE, the personal protective equipment. Uh, and there was a large survey, again, coming out of Wuhan uh, amongst healthcare professionals, really highlighting the really high prevalence of, um, of skin problems from prolonged uh, wearing of, of PPE, including uh, sort of irritant contact dermatitis. Is, is that, John, is that that irritation caused by the the fabric being in contact with the skin and rubbing, or is it based on, on chemicals that are used to, to treat the PPE? Mm, I think it's mainly frictional in nature, um, but also uh, there's increased uh, hand washing, which is a major issue for the population as a whole, as well as, as healthcare professionals. And so hand dermatitis, for example, um, is going to be, a you know I think, an increasing problem. Right. One thing that um, has been in, in the news a lot lately is the whole uh, skin symptoms of COVID-19. We've seen a lot about COVID toe and uh, similar issues that, that have been cropped up. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because I believe that you've, you've uh, published a pretty major study on it. Yes, it's been a, a paper that has received major global attention. Uh, it's a paper from uh, Spanish authors who um, took a, uh, a really uh, measured and prospective data collection exercise to really um, systematically report uh, all, all the skin rashes that um, COVID-19 has been causing. Uh, and they did this very early, uh, really, uh, with support from the Spanish Academy of Dermatology. I was actually lucky enough to hear from Dr. Christina Galvin from the University Hospital of Mosteles and lead research for the study. She explained why this study was conducted in the first place. Many examples of viral diseases can be diagnosed for their skin manifestations. And we thought that well-categorized cutaneous manifestations could be of great help for diagnosis, prognosis and epidemiological knowledge of COVID-19. When we started our study, scientific publications on the subject were very scarce. The pandemic context and strict isolation measures made it difficult to carry out comprehensive studies on the subject. When the pandemic arrived in Italy, doctors from all specialties joined together to care for COVID-19 patients, and a group of dermatologists observed that 22 0.4% of 88 COVID-19 patients showed skin manifestations. They published a crucial study alerting the medical community about the skin manifestations of COVID-19. And they generically described rash, hives, and chickenpox-like eruptions. However, in this study, we were missing both clinical images 
and categorization of the skin lesions present in COVID-19 patients. We also needed to know the epidemiological, diagnostic, and pronostic relevance of these skin manifestations. Therefore, we decided to conduct a study during two weeks, during the peak of the pandemic, aimed to categorize the cutaneous signs of COVID-19, to define and classify them, and also to find out their eventual diagnostic, prognostic, and epidemiological significance. John, having listened to Christina there, do you think you could just provide us with some of what you felt were some of the strengths of this study? We're really pleased to receive this manuscript and um, as it went through very rapid but rigorous peer review uh, and our reviewers were impressed by the paper because um, it used a standardised questionnaire, uh, it, uh, it, it made use of um, dermatologists unaware of the clinical details to categorise the rashes into five patterns and uh, so that I think was... Sorry John, when you say that the, uh, the clinicians were unaware of clinical background of the rashes. What's the relevance of that? How does that help them categorise? Yes, so uh, blinding the, uh, the dermatologists, uh, as, as we call it, to the clinical details allowed them to really just use their pattern recognition skills to categorise the physical signs, the, uh, the patterns of the rashes that they were reviewing uh, without any sort of bias influencing their judgment. So they really then went looking at uh, the rashes in, in great detail uh, and they found they did fit into these five um, uh, fairly uh, clear categories um, and if I'll run through them if I may because this is where I think we, we've got uh, the chance to try and help with with diagnosis because some of these uh, patients may not have classical symptoms of COVID-19 so one pattern that was quite striking that um, has you know, led to this description of COVID toes, uh, is that uh, fingers and toes can be affected by redness and swelling with some small fluid-filled uh, lesions uh, and perhaps some uh, pustules, which look a bit like chillblains. Uh, and so they've been described as pseudo-chillblains in appearance. And about a fifth of cases fitted that pattern. About a tenth of the cases, there were fluid-filled bumps of, of a different pattern. And then about uh, a fifth were the sort of nettle rash, urticarial type uh, rash that's quite common from uh, a variety of different uh, uh, viral triggers. Uh, and about half of the, the rashes were really quite a non-specific uh, viral rash that we call maculopapular, um, red and blotchy uh, and uh, somewhat raised. Uh, and so that probably doesn't have a, a diagnostic feature, but um, there was a category where there was um, purplish discoloration, um, levido, uh, or even sort of death of skin tissue that we call necrosis, um, that affected uh, 6% of, uh, of people uh, with COVID-19 rashes. And, uh, and that was linked to older patients with a greater disease severity. Um, whereas the, uh, the chillblain type lesions uh, tended to be uh, delayed after initial um, COVID symptoms and typically affected younger patients, often children uh, with less severe disease. So some help also in terms of prognosis as well. So I know we need to be very careful, John, about generalisation, but to you, does the study indicate that 
uh, more severe skin symptoms might actually correlate with more severe COVID-19 symptoms? Yes, and you know, there can be confounding factors in terms of age and so on here that, 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 that factor in. But certainly I think uh, some uh, general indications are of um, you know, which types of skin rash might be linked with a better or worse outcome. Uh, and in some cases, this is already known from the patient already having um, you know, uh, other health problems from, the, uh, from their COVID-19. But uh, I think it, it may make a difference in, in a proportion of, uh, of people who are being assessed. Thanks, John. That's really interesting. And that actually might offer a degree of reassurance to people who perhaps experience a rash at the moment that it may not be in any, in any way linked to COVID-19 if it doesn't come hand in hand with the other well-known symptoms that we hear about, such as a fever or a cough. Because I'm assuming that actually rashes are probably quite common in the general population anyway, regardless of the current pandemic. That's very true. And the majority of the rashes that uh, the classifications uh, within uh, the observations confirm that these are quite non-specific rashes. Um, urticaria, nettle rash, is a, is a very common uh, rash pattern that um, has a, you know, a variety of different causes. And the, uh, the maculopapular pattern, uh, that's a finding from, uh, again, main different triggers many other different viruses. And we have to remember that, you know, so the rest of, uh, of, of, of healthcare and so on, it continues and that um, there are lots of causes for uh, most of these patterns of skin rash. So absolutely, it's important to have an open mind and use it to, to help with assessment rather than, uh, you know, sort of being the complete focus. So would you say it's, it's fairly typical um, in a virus to have such a wide array of skin symptoms? Because it does seem that there's quite a lot of variation. Is that typical or do you think COVID is slightly unusual in that regard? I think you know, certainly viruses are, are well known to have uh, trigger different exanthems, different skin rashes as a consequence. Um, and we certainly are seeing a spectrum as um, the Spanish uh, paper uh, has demonstrated. And I think that's, that's um, fairly well recognised. Uh, there's perhaps a bit more variation um, than than for other viruses, but um, but the, you know there are some patterns that have been um, identified to help us there. And I think probably as we understand more about uh, COVID nineteen, we'll begin to, to to better appreciate these specific um, uh, elements. Uh, some of which may be due to uh, you know the virus itself, and a lot though are the uh, body's reaction to the virus and producing these uh, sort of uh, hyper uh, immune responses, which are perhaps then generating secondary uh, problems in different organs, including the skin. Thanks for that, John. It occurs to me that now might be a good time to hear our second clip uh, from my chat with Christina Galvin, the lead researcher, one of the lead researchers for this study. I'd asked her about what she felt were the benefits of this study and perhaps. John, afterwards, we can chat about your perspective on this. I believe the definition of the skin manifestations patterns can be a valuable tool for epidemiological control, diagnosis and prognosis of COVID-19. The relationship between the different patterns and the different stages of the COVID-19 could also help the clinician choose the best diagnostic test for each patient. 
and knowing the moment of appearance of each pattern. For example, chill blends are late, whereas bicycles uh, are early. Perhaps we could be able to request the test at the appropriate time. I also believe that this work has laid the foundation for further studies that expand our knowledge of COVID-19. The description of these patterns will help us to reveal the underlying mechanism and the type of cause-effect relationships that each pattern has with the virus. So, John, as we just heard from Christina, she hopes that this will be a foundation for future COVID research and, and dermatology. Research is obviously an iterative process, um, so a, a strong foundation is key. Do you agree with her, John, that this, this is going to be a really useful piece of research in that regard? I think so. It, it really is a remarkable collection of cases, and it's happened very quickly after the uh, the initial uh, pandemic has um begun to, to, to raise the profile of these um, skin rash patterns. But it's not uh, perhaps the, the final answer here that um, we need other research to uh, corroborate the findings. Um, it's always important within research to have other groups to, uh, uh, to provide their contribution to, to the data. Um, for example, the UK is organising a similar data collection exercise via the British Association of Dermatologists. So that will provide us with, with additional data to see uh, if that mirrors the, uh, the, the Spanish findings. Um, in saying that, um, the outcomes um, in this context of quite an, an acute rash and an acute infection can be assessed within a relatively short time. So um, Calvin Casas and her colleagues may have provided us with a definitive paper, but uh, only time will, will tell in that regard. Um, and there will be new findings coming along, without doubt. Uh, and while it should be emphasised, for example, that in the majority of people, particularly children, symptoms of COVID-19 are mild, uh, we are getting some uh, early reports of uh, uh, a Kawasaki-like uh, skin signs uh, in a few uh, very unwell children who, um, uh, who were exposed to COVID-19, who had skin peeling of their fingers and toes. And this is just a... Uh, really just a few cases coming through and there's some early reports um, but it shows that um, I'm sure we'll be finding out new facets to um, COVID-19 and effects on skin uh, as uh, time develops. John one final question we had was um, is it likely that we'll see variation in the types of symptoms we're seeing in response to COVID-19? Will there be a variation based on ethnic background or geographical location, do you think? Is that likely? It's a good question, Matt. And, and uh, the current answer is we don't know uh, because there haven't been enough papers coming through uh, looking at the effects on the skin of, of COVID-19 in uh, skin of colour uh, in people of Asian and Afro-Caribbean ethnicity. And this, I think, is a, a large area of unmet research need. In general, it's harder to diagnose skin rashes and people of colour because some of the signs such as skin redness can be masked and also healthcare professionals training resources are generally focused on uh, rashes in, uh, in, in white individuals. So I think this is certainly an area that um, uh, we'd be keen to publish more on and, and very much encourage our research to be, um, to be conducted to understand how um, 
COVID-19 will affect people of darker skin types, uh, both in terms of diagnosis and the patterns of, uh, of skin problems it might be causing. That's really important, actually. Thanks for touching on that. Definitely, we should be encouraging people to, to do more research into that. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on and, and uh, taking some time to walk us through the, the, the sort of research side of, of uh, dermatology and COVID-19. Wishing you all the best and uh, hopefully we see lots more really exciting papers. Thanks so much for your time, John. It's been really interesting having you on. Thanks, Matt. We're, we're looking out for more COVID research to, to showcase and, uh, you know, this is such an important area. So uh, we'll be uh, doing all we can to, to bring more papers to the public domain. That's everything for this week. I hope you enjoyed our chats with Professor Nick Lavelle and Dr John Ingram. Please keep an eye out for further episodes of Dermatologically Tested. And in the meantime, wishing you all the best from the British Association of Dermatologists.